Uh, I'm Kari Hestamar from uh, Norwegian Broadcasting Corporation. I've been working in NRK since 1996, the first three years in the news department, where I worked both as a program host and as a reporter, both for radio and television. And I've been making radio documentaries of features since 1999. Uh, our format is uh, plus minus 40 minutes long pieces. Uh, and the documentaries are broadcasted every Saturday morning at 10.15 and rebroadcasted Sunday evening at 7.30. Uh, we are uh, eight people working on a steady basis uh, with documentaries at NIK. Uh, and there are also quite a few freelancers working for us. And the number of listeners is steadily increasing and we've now got a quite strong position within the broadcasting corporation. Uh, when I make documentaries, I'm trying to create a movie on the inner screen of the listeners. And I want this movie to be as full of colors and smells and feelings as a real movie. Uh, and on your inner screen, I believe that people can even become more authentic and real than on the television screen. The unique thing about radio is that we can add our own pictures and experiences and on television, it's the TV producer's dream you're dreaming, but on radio, it's your own, because you add your own feelings and experiences. I often get distracted when I watch television. I start watching, looking at the sofa, what color it is, or at their clothes or whatever, and I can't really hear what they're saying. Uh, it's easier, in my opinion, to love people on radio than on television. <laughs> And a good radio documentary should talk both to your heart and your brain, in my opinion. And in radio, the best way to inform people is through creating feelings. Uh, as you all know, to create pictures in the head of the listener is very important and can be done both with sounds and words, of course. And this demands another way of interviewing than, for instance, in the news reports. There is a lot of feelings in the concrete. There's one of Norway's most famous poets, Ola Hårhauge. He was living alone most of his life, but when he was about 60, he got a girlfriend, and she moved into his house on the countryside. And he then wrote a poem that begins like this, a new yellow cloak on the kitchen table. This is his way of describing that a mo woman moved into his house. It is his picture, and not many others would have put the same words to that feeling. And this is what I'm always looking for, uh, not the general feelings, but the very concrete pictures that can, that can uh, give the general feeling. Uh, I was happy, sad, angry, it's so overused, it's so general. Uh, and if we ask too big or too wide questions, it's difficult for people to answer. A friend of mine always asks me, how's life, Kari? And I never know what to answer. Am I going to speak about love, work, family? Uh, so I nearly always ask quite detailed questions. Uh, a few years ago, I interviewed an old sailor that had been sent away to foster parents when he was 10. And instead of asking what he felt about the whole thing, I asked him in details about that day. 
that he was sent away, what happened from the morning, what he was wearing. And he, asked, he answered, I was wearing a dark suit and a tie, and I was carrying a suitcase to make an impression on my foster parents. And this, in my opinion, creates much more feelings than if he'd said, I was angry or sad or indifferent or, or whatever. So this is what I always try to, to look for, people's concrete images. Uh, I'm going to play two excerpts of a piece that I made last year called So Long, Marian. Uh, it is a program about Leonard Cohen's uh, Norwegian muse and sweetheart from the 60s. So Long, Marian was a huge hit in the 60s and 70s. Uh, and this is the woman Leonard Cohen wrote it to. I knew that she was Norwegian, uh, and I started to wonder who is she, what is she doing today, what was the story. So I googled her, and I found her family name, and I phoned her up. And we had a very sweet talk on the phone. She's been asked many, many times to, ask, to tell her story, but has always declined. But now, for different reasons, she was ready to tell it. She was 70 years old at the point where I found her up, and she couldn't wait much longer if she wanted to talk. Um, I sent her some of my work, and she liked it, and so for various reasons, she said yes. Uh, it's a 45 minutes long piece, but I'll just play the beginning so that you get a sense of the tone and the program. Uh, and afterwards, I'll play the excerpt where she meets Leonard Cohen for the first time. The two of them met on the Greek island of Hydra, uh, where there was an artist colony at the time. And Marianne had uh, escaped from Norway with her uh, bohemian uh, author uh, or writer boyfriend. Uh, nevertheless, the two of them had a very turbulent relationship. Uh, I'll play the beginning for you. Do everyone have a script? Yeah? Det er veldig stille på havet i dag, eller sjøen, det er veldig skal si. Nå skal vi se. Opa! Vi skal ha stereoanlegg så lavt enn det. Ok, kom igjen. De siste 50 årene av mitt liv så drømmer jeg fremdeles om Lennart. Han setter man seg sammen an, eller hva som er liksom scenen rundt, rundt det, så er det en positiv drøm for mig. 
men i natt så dukade han en upp i min dröm. Och så säger han, Mariana, you must not talk so much. Och här sitter jag och ser på dig och du får mig till att prata, 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 prata. Ja, ja. Lennart Cohens norska ungdomskärast. Endelig skal jeg få høre historien bak sången. Alt det rare som er skrevet, som er så bare vil fantasi. Jeg vil. Jeg har aldri giddet å si hvordan det var. Det er veldig, veldig, veldig mange som har ville treffe mig, men det har liksom ikke skjønt. Jeg har aldri skjønt hvorfor. Men det är er mycket lättare att snacka om dessa ting nu än det någon gång har varit och det är er den enda orsaken till att jag har haft lust att träffa dig. Jag hade sett bilder av och bak på platåkovare till Songs from a Room. Marianne är er ett kvitt gräsgrom, sitter nu framför skrivmaskinen till Lennart Cohen. Vad ska jag lägga en kaffe till dig? Hon såg så otroligt skyldig och ung ut. Cohen så var den vackraste kvinnan någon gång han mött. Jag följde aldrig att jag såg ut i det hela tiden. Jag trodde inte på det när Lennart sa ju det måste bli för vad jag vill säga och det har han fortsatt att säga si. men jag menar alltså jag syns att jag hade förunt ansikt så jag har gått och sett ned hela livet men jag hade ju det var solen bleket håret ditt och du var ju i Grekland var du så blond så blond så blond för där var ju de flesta mörka kyn ingen pupper nästan <laughs> till min stora beklagelse Lennart och Sandra på den tiden. Åh, han var skön. Har du sett bilder av Lennart han var ung? Jo, det har du. Han var flott. Han syns heller inte han så ut i det hela tatt. Vi hade begge problemer du aner inte. Vi stod väldigt ofta föran spegeln för vi gick ut och lurade på vem vi var idag och så. Ja gud och rare, vi människor är er du. Mm. Ser du där kommer den an? Mm. Mer i det västliga huset hennes i strandkanten på Larkollen, där hon växte upp samman med mormor si under krigen. Jag är er så vant till den gardinen, men för dig skulle jag i grunden ha tuckat mig för det ja. Ser allt som heter. Hon var gift i 25 år, är er framlägs vacker med grått hår och linjer i ansiktet. Bara några veckor gammal blev Marianne lagt på kökenbordet till mormor. Och så berättade min mormor och så lyfte jag det upp och så så jag det dypt in i ögonen och så sa jag äntligen är er du kommit min lille prinsesse. Och så hade hon detta jag ser och jag vet Marianne och det sa hon när jag var liten en gång och det var du ska träffa en man som snackar med en tunga av guld. Och när jag liksom tänker på valga män senare så har det ju varit jag vill se si, Den mest gyllene tungen av de alle er vel helt uten tvil, Lennart Cohen, altså. If it be your will That a voice be true From this broken hill I will sing to you From this broken hill 
Jag har ju... Okay, so that's the beginning of the piece. Uh, when she said yes, I knew that I wanted, I don't know why, but I wanted so much to hear her sing so long, Marianne. <laughs> so I tried to record it in many different ways. Finally, I put headphones uh, on her uh, so that she could hear the song, but not I. So I recorded her singing with headphones on her ears. And so we mixed it afterwards. So that's the way we did that. Um, I spent a lot of time with her, uh, and I could have recorded a lot of different situations and visited friends or whatever together with her, but I wanted this universe. I wanted to be in her small house next to the fjord outside Oslo. Uh, so that's why I let in all these little things about the duck and the curtains, and I wanted to create a universe within her house. Uh, she's, Norwegians uh, have always known that Marianne is Norwegian and Leonard Cohen is huge in Norway. He always goes number one uh, when there's a new record. Uh, anyway, the story continues. Um, she was uh, married to a Norwegian writer, one of the most famous Norwegian writers, Axel Jensen. Uh, and the two of them left for Greece. Uh, but he cheated on her all the time, had a lot of mistresses. Uh, the first one had black hair, so Marianne dyed her hair black and woke up the next morning wondering, hmm, who is this on my pillow? Um, and at a certain point, she decided to move back to Norway. But then Axel Jensen asked her to marry him, and that was what she really wanted, so she said yes. Uh, they had a baby. But then new women came into their life. Uh, and in the middle of all this, Leonard Cohen showed up. So we are going to move uh, to page eight in your transcript. And Marianne says, and in the middle of all this commotion, Leonard Cohen shows up. Och mitt uppe i detta ståka här så dukar Lennart Cohen upp. Jag stod i butiken med köjami och skulle hämta flaskevatten och mjölk. Och han står i dörröppningen med solen bak sig. Och då ser du på ansiktet, du ser bara konturerna. Och så hör jag stämmen som säger, Would you like to join us? We're sitting outside. Och så säger jag tack. Och så handlar jag färdig. Och så går jag ut. Och så sätter jag mig på detta bord, och det satt tre, fyra människor som bodde på hydra den gången. Det jag inte visste där jag träffade var ju att han visste om allt det som hade skett för jag kom. För han hade ju varit där och förstått vad som föregick. Så jag tror allerede då han så mig så hade han en enorm medlidenhet med med mig och barnen. Kan du också gå så såg ut? Han hade på sig eh kakibuxor mer över i det gröna. Och så hade han sina älskade 
det vi kallade gamla dagar tennisko. Och så hade han en nylig liten sixpence. Men jag husker gott att när vi när mine mötte hans ögon så kände jag det genom hela kroppen. Det vet du vad det är. Er. Det är er helt otroligt. Så skulle jag då upp över Galapagos till mitt lilla hus. Och den sista sista knäcka är er väldigt väldigt bra så du är helt våt av svett när du kommer upp till huset. Och körja var väldigt tung. Och där var hon söt till lilla Evgenia och hade varit samma axel och lekt med han och så så gick hon och så var jag väldigt jag var nästan lite pussa. Jag satt på musik med en gång vi skulle dansa lite runt och tyckte det var kärpegöj att vara samma med min son plötsligt och tyckte det var enkelt och grejt och om vi kan väl gå lägga sig med en gång så var det allt right. det var en lätthet and let that told them If you want a lover I'll do anything you ask me to And if you want another kind of love I'll wear a mask for you If you want a partner take my hand or if you want to strike me down in anger Here I stand I'm your man Det var i maj 1960 och Marianne var 25 år. Men själv om hon dansade sig hem efter det första mötet med Lennart Cohen var det framlägs Axel Jens nog vänta på. Han hade dratt på båttur för att finna ut om han skulle välja Marianne eller se si amerikanska älskarinne. Så jag husker då vi skulle se si adjö till han och se han segla ut så blev jag grundligt glad för jag kände att uh, det er kanske hopp allikevel. Så jag bad någon vänner upp till det lilla husmitt för jag kunde ju inte gå ut så mycket för jag hade baby. Och så husker jag att det var uh, blomstring, det var i slutet av maj och hela verandan var var full av de blomsterna som är er vit i mitten med gule. Så knep jag hodene av det och så la jag det i en konflut med en liten lapp hvor jag skrev jag är er glad i dig. En ung amerikaner som var på besök i Marianne la märke till att du putta blomman i brevet. Han drog vidare till Aten nästa dag. Marianne sitt brev blev sent med samma båten. Och den historien var underlig för att Axel Jensen hade inte tänkt att resa ut på båten och finna ut vem man var glad i han reste till den nästa ön och traff denne kvinnan och så seilte de sammen till Aten. Och på American Express den nästa dagen då da, så stod de två och Axel hämtat sin post. Öppnade det brevet och så datt disse blomsten ut och så stod den amerikanaren i kön vid sidan och väntade på sin post och så tänkte han detta må vara brev från Marianne. Detta må ju vara Axel. Han kände han ju så tog han båten tillbaka till Hydra. Och så kom han upp till mig och så sa han I just had to tell you Mariana, but they are together. Han är er inte på någon båttur och finna ut av sig själv och då förstod jag att det är allt över. Nej, jag kan inte fortälla allt det här. 
Det har varit så mycket, det har varit så mycket. Jag tror inte jag grejde. Tänk på det. Nu har vi har lite te. I love you in the morning kisses deep and warm your hair upon the pillow like a sleepy golden storm yes many love before us i know that we are not new in city and in forest they smile like me and you but now it's come to distances both of us must try your eyes are soft with sorrow hey Himla ha för en ett upprör hela tiden. Så började Lena och jag och mötes tidigt på dagen så gick vi kanske ned till stranden. Någon gång så blev jag och Axel med han upp till det lilla huset han hade lejt för det var ikke så högt. Och så lade vi lunch. Och så såna ju Axel och så var det standigt för mig och så så vi började se varandra på dagarna. Men den den historien hela tiden som Axel hela tiden ah Leonard Cohen tog my my wife or whatever he calls it. Nej det var det var inte som det var. Han körde mig till med helt hem till Norge med den bilen som Axel hade tagit med sig ned dit. Jag var också bortsett när det allt och liksom mötte en man som som uppförde sig sånt som han gjorde. Det var si. jag säger. Han minte mig väldigt om mormor, alltså hennes energi, hennes en enorm tillstedevärelse. Du kunde verkligen stole på han. Det var så att går han och vara så glad i mig som han säger han är, inte sant? Jag kan då omöjligt vara så mycket. Så körde han mig helt hem till Norge med den bilen och då var det jag förstod att det var nog mer en vänskap. Men då då var jag skrall. Då var jag väldigt då kom reaktionerna den ena efter den andra. Men eh, da han reste tillbaka till Montreal så gick det inte lång tid för jag fick ett telegram. Have house. All I need is my woman and her son. Love Leonard. Så var det. I always try to find a tone or a sound for the pieces that I make. Fast, slow, airy, melancholic, poetic. I try to to create a sound to to the piece. Uh, there is a lot of information in the little things. Uh, this is something that I've experienced a lot of times. Uh, that there is so much information in small comments in the part of the interview that isn't the clean interview. When people stand up and walk towards the kitchen to get a cup of coffee, they speak with a different voice than when they sit down being interviewed by you. Uh, for instance, in this piece, Marianne says, now we 
gotta have some tea. It's nothing really. But on the other hand, it, it widens the picture. She becomes more than a person being interviewed by me. She becomes a whole person. Um, so I tend more and more to let in these small details that, that gives a bigger picture of a person. Uh, and I always try to create a room to let the listeners know where they are. Uh, and you can do that either with sounds or with narration so that we know what kind of setting we're in. I want people to know whether we're in the kitchen or in the living room or outside. I, I, like in a movie, I want to, to draw the room. Um, and the microphone is my camera. Uh, like in the movies, you've got close-ups, you get half shots, total shots. And it's the same with radio, actually. You, you need variation to get the dynamics. Uh, so if I want to interview someone about their innermost feelings, I got to, pick, uh, to put the microphone very close to their mouth, like two, three, four centimeters. Then you can hear all the sounds in the voice. You can hear where the voice is cracking, where you're smacking, a small sigh. The voice gives away an enormous amount of information when you're that close. And you can't see the room, it's just, you can just see the inside in a way. And you can hear if the person is a smoker, what kind of social class he or she comes from. It's a lot of information. Um, in contrast to, to interviews with authorities, who are often interviewed an arm length away, like, like this. So if you want the audience to love your main character, you've got to go close with the microphone. Uh, and I often sit next to people when I do my interviews, since I never do like this. Um, it's often more relaxing for people if you sit down next to them, and especially if they're going to speak about things that are difficult for them, because then they don't have to look me in the eyes all the time. They can let their thoughts and eyes wander a bit, and I don't have to, uh, to um, confirm them all the time. So it's more relaxing both for me and for, for them. Uh, it depends a bit on the setting and the person, but but having to look into somebody's eyes can be quite confronting and uh, sometimes feels uncomfortable. So very often I, I sit like this. And it's also relaxing because you can lean your arm on a pillow or whatever and you can, can sit like this. Uh, and I also try to make my characters speak on behalf of themselves so that they say I instead of you or one. Uh, and when things are difficult to speak about, people tend to say, to, to use the general terms, to say you instead of I. Uh, depending a bit on the situation, I sometimes stop the interview and explain and ask, would you mind repeating or saying it again, but use I instead of one or you. Uh, and it's also like, I have to be the one that you want to tell your story to. Uh, like in life, there are some people that you want to open up for and other people that you don't want to put your heart in the hands of. Um, and I remember once we had interviewing training at NRK and this, there was this guy from the news department who was interviewing me. And I put out traces and tracks for him, but he didn't listen. He didn't catch it. And then I just drew back and I thought, I won't give him my story because he doesn't listen. And that's really the essential 
for us as well as professionals. Uh, and therefore, I never make notes during my interviews, and I never look at written questions, because that draws the attention away from the person you're supposed to focus on. Uh, so instead, I prepare before meeting them, but I never carry like written questions. Or, um, and I try to be quiet and shut my mouth, though it's not so easy always. <laughs> We're often afraid of pauses, and they feel so long. Uh, very often, reporters talk too much, myself included. Uh, but first of all, pauses might be very useful for the pace of the story. And second, if you don't say anything, the other one is going to come up with something, and often good stuff as well. So, so shut your mouth. Is <laughs> um, and sometimes I explain how I'm working, that if I'm not responding, it's not because I'm stupid or an idiot or when I ask for all the details that the person being interviewed might feel irrelevant for the story. It's, it's, uh, it's not because uh, I don't pay attention, or it's just because I want the details, I want the, the big picture. Uh, and what is sometimes also useful, if people is starting to tell something that you want to hear more about, and they stop, uh, uh, for instance, I met the love of my life at the railway station, and stop, and I want to hear more. Uh, I sometimes pick up the last sentence. Okay, so you met the love of your life at the railway station. And then sometimes people pick up at the same point again. Um, Marianne had a very accurate memory. She remembered all the details and situations and what they were wearing, what kind of feelings arose in the specific situations. Uh, I thought I'd play a piece from the Leonard Cohen uh, documentary as well. I made the Marianne piece Spring and Summer 2005, and I met Leonard Cohen in October. Uh, first, I thought that to make, I wanted to make one program with both of them in the same program. But then I had a deadline and he couldn't meet me till October, so we decided to make two programs. Uh, I spent three days together with him in his home in Los Angeles. And he has many of the same qualities as Marianne. They are the kind of persons that you want to be around and that makes you feel good and welcome. In the, in the interviews, they gave really different things. Uh, he says that, I don't have a mind, it's all blur. <laughs> uh, so while she remembered all the details, he's kind of, he summons up. But quite well put, in my, my opinion. Uh, you'll hear just a couple of minutes from the beginning, uh, and then a bit later on. Is it okay to, do you manage to read and, and listen? Yeah. Just fooling around, just remembering. Just remembering. I forget what these songs are. I really gotta learn them again. Leonard Cohen has blamed his old songs. He has not played them in 12 years. Now he sits at home in his Westly house and tries to play. Fordi jeg så gjerne ville det. 
if it be your will, I, I, I don't remember it. Then I have to learn it. I've been blessed with amnesia. I hardly remember anything of the past. You know? I don't have any good memories or bad memories. Leonard Cohen says that he is a sign of unforgiveness. That he hopes for nothing. Want to some of this? Shall I cut you a piece? Yes. What What do you feel like? A little bit of everything? Evelyn still has questions for him to remember, but he had advised me to get an e-post before I came. My memory isn't all that good. My life has always felt the same. One day bleeds into another. It's been a lot of sunlight, and then just uh, working. It seems to be the the inner voice seems to be saying, "Make something." Den inre röst säger skap något, något vackert eller viktigt eller uviktigt bara skap något. Den ene dagen blör in i den andra och livet har alltid fölts likt. Vet inte när denna morgon börjar eller när denna kvällen vill ända. Bara några få ting står ut från lärrete då barnen har dina varit född eller den första gången du gick på scen med gitarren. Yes, my daughter. What is it? How are you, sweetheart? Forget it, darling. Is is Daniel here? He's at your store. Okay, sweetheart. Thanks a lot. Speak to you later. Bye. Those aren't my daughter's dogs. Those are the neighbors, the naughty neighbors' dogs. Your dogs are the nice ones. My dogs are the nice ones. Okay, so that was the beginning of of Leonard Cohen. Uh, same goes for him. I I tried to to let in the little things, as when he picks up the phone, and it's his daughter on the line. Uh, he then becomes a normal hum, human being and not just some big star up on the stage. Uh, it was. A strange interviewing situ situation because he was very silent, and um, we really spent a lot of time together saying nothing, <laughs> which is very awkward when you're a journalist because you kind of you want to present yourself and you want to ask your questions and do your recordings. Uh, but we spent like hours saying nothing, and at first he wasn't very. He was willing to give me the interview, uh, but he. Kind of put some limits to it as well. So I understood that okay, I just have to keep silent and, and draw back. And maybe it's just a very Zen Buddhist way of of uh, being. But but then after a while he came to me because then the meeting comes from <laughs> some other place, uh, which was an interesting exercise <laughs> for me. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> and I brought uh, the piece that I made about Marianne to, to Leonard, so I actually played it for him in his living room. 
uh, and he read the Norwegian or the English transcript while, while listening. Uh, Can I, you, you were talking about miking before, and would you say that you mic Leonard and her the same way? Terms of closeness or? Uh, she's closer than him, yeah, because I was a bit nervous about the whole setting. So I, uh, he had made coffee and bought cakes and put them on the kitchen table next to a huge refrigerator, and that made a lot of noise. And I didn't dare to break up the situation and ask, can we do the interview in the living room? So the sound quality of some of the interviews with Lena Cohen are quite ousy. Yeah. Do you uh, wish that you had this? I mean, do you, you know, I, I know that feeling of, of not wanting to break something up and being nervous, and I often reflect back and say, it would have been okay if I had asked. I mean, do you? I regret, because he wouldn't have mind, minded, I'm sure. He's yeah. professional, he wouldn't, it was just my nervousness yeah. and my, yeah. yeah that's not He's very professional, so he wouldn't, he yeah. would have <laughs> gone to the living room if that's what I wanted, so, yeah. So I regret not doing it, so I really learned my lesson. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I always work with the Sennheiser microphones, and I usually attach two microphones uh, to each other, so that I work with both the f a microphone that is like the figure eight that captures the room, and a shotgun that's pointing against uh, the one that I'm interviewing. Uh, this is, yeah. Uh, are, you, uh, are those in stereo? Yeah. Did you have to finish your story? <laughs> well, it was, I played uh, the Marianne piece for Leonard Cohen uh, and uh, recorded while we listened to it. Uh, and he's uh, also talking quite a lot about Marianne uh, in my interview with him. So this is where we're going to jump into the story. Oh, sorry, I'll need to give you the page. It is on page 12, I believe. Yeah, top uh, page 12. I remember her arriving at the airport. Long time, so I got a telegram. Have house. All I need is my woman and her son. Love, Leonard. Somebody. I remember her arriving at the airport in her um, fur coat. She had two heavy valises in each hand. I, I was prevented from entering that area, but I could see her through the glass. And she couldn't wave to me because she couldn't lift the suitcases up and she didn't want to drop them, she was moving. You know? So she waved to me with her foot. I remember that very, very clearly. <laughs> Excuse me. Hi, sweetheart. What are you doing? Oh, listen, darling, I'm just in the middle of an interview. Yeah. I'll speak to you later on tonight. Okay, darling. Bye. Did you feel that love was risky sometimes? Risky? Yeah. It's dangerous, <laughs> never mind. You know, it's fatal. <laughs> it's a risky business. <laughs> I had to go crazy to love you. I had to go down to the pit. I had to go crazy to love you. I had to let everything fall. I had to 
people I hated. I had to be no one at all. Tired of choosing desire. I've been saved by a blessed fatigue. The gates of commitment unwired and nobody trying to leave. the way I describe certain moments now in that in that process. Thanks for the dance. Thanks for all the dances. It's been hell, it's been swell, it's been fun. Thanks for the dance. Thanks for all the dances. One, two, three, one, two, three, one. Thanks for the dance. I'm sorry you're tired. The evening has hardly begun Thanks for the dance Try to look inspired One, two, three, one, two, three, one There's a rose in my hair My shoulders are bare I've been wearing this costume Det luktar middag på det gamla kvitmåla kökenet till Lennart Cohen. Han ställer i stan mat till kvällens fest. Gästerna kommer om ett par timmar. Cohens gamla vän Eric sticker en tur inom och snusar i grytorna. That's Mariana's. Oh wow! That's Mariana's. And it makes opener. It's the best opener I ever. Yeah. I, I'm very grateful when the kids or my friends come on a Friday night, and and I know what the form, you know, of the of the meal is going to be, and I know what the tone is going to be. It is very, so for that reason, it's very relaxing. Okay, so there's going to be a party by the end of <laughs> the documentary. Uh, when I say that I made a portrait of Leonard Cohen, everybody asks me, one, did he make a pass on you? Two, did you fall in love with him? But I'm <laughs> not going to ask either of those, uh, <laughs> answer either of those questions. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, oh, I also work. Well, do you have any questions, by the way, besides that? <laughs> uh, yeah. 
I make uh, three documentaries a year. Uh, and I work quite a lot as a coach and teach a lot besides that. But uh, yeah, three documentaries, about 40 minutes each piece. And we have a very well-working system in Norway where we're always working with coaches. So if I'm starting on a project, there's always somebody else in the feature group that is my coach. So it's teamwork all the way, which is really, we couldn't have done the things that we do without each other's help. And uh, so the process is research and then it, it's, I, it's more or less eight weeks per production. So we're very privileged compared to, <laughs> to many others. Uh, and I, I edit the pieces together with uh, a sound engineer. So we spend two or three weeks in a studio editing the pieces. So that's uh, basically it. Please introduce. Is there somebody that comes on before we hear the piece and explain what's, what's going to happen in this piece, or does it just go on the air and select a... The, no, there's an intro to, to the piece. Yeah, okay. there is. Does the program go out once, or does it go out a lot of times? Because you put so much time into it. No, they are rebroadcasted, yeah, they are. Uh, depends, depends a bit, and it depends on the program as well. Uh, I, I assume that these programs have been broadcasted like three or four times on the cultural channel. Yeah. When you do a piece like this, what do you hope that your listeners will take away from it? <laughs> and how do you find out what they do take away from it? <laughs> well, for the last question, I, I don't know if I can answer that. But, but I, want, I want people to be touched in one way or the other. That's always my aim when I make something. I wanted to speak to the heart because I really I think radio is a wonderful medium for, for that. It really, when it's good, it addresses your, your feelings. It can be on a political matter or a love story or whatever, but that's what I always try to do somehow. And it can, of course, be done in sound, in narration, in, well, all the recordings, but, but that's my main goal, yeah. Are you using, are other people using some of the same techniques you use on these longer projects with pro, you know, projects that have much different deadlines, smaller deadlines, or is there kind of trickle down to the techniques you're exploring and have the luxury to explore on a longer? Yeah, and quite I've, a few of the things that we do can easily be done also for shorter forms. And that's what annoyed me a bit when I, I worked uh, for the news department for three years and nobody ever told me about it these things, but it can, it can easily be done also for shorter forms and, and reports, uh, both the technical side of it, but also the way of asking questions and, and the structure, how to put up a storyboard and, and make dramaturgy out in, in a piece, yeah. How do you think about um, the narrator as a character? The narrator in the pieces is obviously someone in the room you know, having tea, and there is his kind of character in a way, but, but not being. Yeah, it has changed for me. I tend to become more and more part of my pieces. In the beginning, it was really quite neutral narration. Uh, but more and more, I rely on what happens between me and the person that I'm interviewing. Uh, so. Therefore, there's also a lot of information in these things going on between 
me and Marianne, me and Leonard Cohen. So, so I tend to let these things in more and more. And I also play quite a lot with, uh, with narration. I've written first person, second person, third person. Uh, um, I've had inner discussions with myself. So radio is also a great medium for, for playing with, with narration. Um, can you talk a little bit about the mandate that you have from um, Radio Norway? Like what, what are the goals of the Features Department, or what, what kind of work did they want you to produce? Do you want to produce for them? And what, what's, what, are your expect what are the expectations of your listening audience? Like, I'm just trying to get a sense of what, how Radio works there, I guess. Uh, we're eight people on a steady basis working there, and quite a lot of freelancers. Uh, and more and more people want to make features, and more and more people listen to features. And uh, with podcasting coming up, it'll also increase, I, I guess. Well, like the, the eighth, um, we're the eighth one, um, oh, English, uh, on the podcasting list, we're number eight now. And, and that's really quite high up compared to many of the other more well known shows going on. Um, and <laughs> the, since we put so much money and effort into the pieces, uh, actually management has said that we are going to win prizes with the work that is part of our mandate to, to <laughs> create that good uh, pieces. Uh, so it's really going to, we are also, it's also in our mandate to, to experiment with, with radio. So we teach also in the other radio shows in, in NRK. So it is part of our uh, mandate to develop radio as a medium, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I can understand why this wonderful subject of Leonard Cohen and Marianne would be something you just knew in your heart and you just had to do. But on other subjects, can you talk a little bit about how you go about deciding on a topic to cover as a documentary? Uh, I'll play excerpts from two other stories that, I, that came from... Uh, it depends. Uh, a lot. Sometimes there's a topic that I just finished a documentary on illegal immigration like two weeks ago because I think it's so, so sad with all the people that are just washed up on the shores of the Canary Islands. Uh, these, it's like thousands of people drowning uh, nearly each week in Europe trying to, they're seeking a better life. So, and I'm thinking, how can I look into my daughter's eyes in 20 years and say, we didn't do anything because we have the means to do something. So that story I really made out of, oh, I, I think it's such an important subject. Uh, the Marianne thing was, I was just curious. It, I just, who is she? What's she doing now? And what was the story? Um, I'm going to play an excerpt uh, of another documentary that I made uh, uh, from a children's home. Uh, so I really make very different stories. Sometimes stories are given to me, at, like... Uh, here's a story that I heard. Could it, this be something for you? Uh, but it's never like my boss gave me a story and said, you have to make this one. It's always my own, my own stuff. Well, what I want, yeah, that was one question, but also just do you do a lot of work before you actually go out and start rolling the tape? A lot of research and things? Sometimes I do. Uh, like for the children's home, for instance, I read all the books that I could find about how it is to, to grow up in a children's home. Uh, and it took me like weeks to get permission to get in there. Uh, 
So uh, it depends a lot. For the Marianne piece, I read what I could find uh, on the internet and I listened to the music and I read Leonard Cohen's uh, poetry and books. Uh, so it depends on the subject a bit. Yeah. Okay, I'm curious as to how you kind of decided on the intersections of the two languages in your pieces. Because I noticed that you don't um, really translate like throughout it. And I'm wondering how, like, did you decide that, or did it just kind of come out in the way they're talking? You decided that that would be better than any like over like Yeah, especially for Leonard Cohen, it's a yeah. pity to put somebody else's voice on, on top of him. So, and also the, the listeners, the people that listen to the cultural channel in Norway, they speak fairly good English. So, so, but I couldn't have broadcasted an entirely English piece. It, I will have to translate a bit, but uh, most people speak quite well English in Norway. So, so you would broadcast an American piece? Yeah, but with some Norwegian translation, even though, so, yeah. Can I ask one question about the coach? How the, what is the role of the coach? Yeah. The the coach? How does that relationship work? It works like that. Well, uh, I just, Marianne just said yes to do an interview. Uh, okay, uh, what is the story going to be? Uh, how are you going to develop the story? Uh, um, what will the sound of the piece be like? We discuss dramaturgy, well, the structure of the piece, how, what questions to ask in the interview. I do my first interview, I get my material, come back to NRK, and we listen to the stuff, and my coach listened to some of it, uh, and we're uh, above the research part, and okay, what is the story going to be? Where is it heading? What should I do next? So it's really, we work quite tight together. And also, the coach comes to studio and listens to the five first minutes, for instance, of the piece, and I don't understand anything, this doesn't work, Why, what are you trying to tell me? So I have to restructure the whole thing, and he or she comes again and listen. So it's really, yeah. I can recommend that we're working <laughs> if you get persons to work with, yeah. Okay, I also work quite a lot as a fly on the wall. <laughs> Every day is filled with the situations and uh, our whole lives can be seen as a movie where we hopefully play the main part. And situations tell much more than an interview very often. It is storytelling in present tense People don't talk about themselves, but they are themselves. And you avoid the cloudy analysis, and therefore might get closer to the truth. When we look back, we often remember things differently from how they really were. And we also tend to color our past in a way that we want it to, to look like. And the interview actually has a lot in common with the examination, with the teacher asking the pupil. It has little in common with other ways of being together. Uh, normally it's not like one person asking all the questions and the other one answering. So when you're making a portrait of somebody or a feature report, the interview isn't always the, always the best way, in my opinion. Uh, a few years ago I made this documentary called Sent to Linday Island. It is about what it's like to grow up in a children's home. Uh, there were seven children living on an island on the western coast of Norway. 
there are no other houses uh, on this island, just this institution. And in the old days, parents used to say to, to the kids that if you don't behave, we'll send you to Linde. And that was the worst thing that, that could happen. Uh, I stayed in this institution for more or less three weeks. It took me a long, long time to get permission to do it. But then the deal was that I was allowed to record everything and that the children could tell me to turn off the recorder or leave the room if they didn't want me to be there. And I wanted to understand more from a child's point of view how it is to grow up in an institution like this because we always hear like social workers or grown-ups talking on their behalf. Uh, so I followed three of the boys living there and I did no interviews with the staff. They were only present in, in situations. And we're gonna listen to an excerpt where uh, Ronnie has had a bad day and he loses his head a bit. Uh, do you all have the script? Yeah? Okay, two, yeah. Ronny står på tunet utanför institutionen. Han sender en spytteklyse midt i fjeset på en tilse. Et par av de andre ungdommene står og ser på. Ronny har slått miljøterapeuten tidligere i dag, og etter det har det hele gått litt på tverket. Ronny blir ført opp trappa og inn på rommet sitt. Kan du gå? Nei. Jeg sier unnskyld. Nei, det holder ikke. For den sier du bare når du vil bli ferd og vil gå ut til de andre, da sier du unnskyld. Og du mener det ikke mye. Ronny sitter i senga si og vrir seg. Han må forklare hvorfor han har slått og spyttet på Patrick. Du vet så jævla mye du har meg i forhold til sånn. Jeg vet at når du gjør noe sånt, så bruker det alltid å være en grunn til det. Så som du mener er en grunn til å få meg tre ganger. Ja, det er jo fag, ja. Hva er det som gjør at du er sint på meg? Hvorfor slo du ikke roer eller harald? Jeg fikk så jævla lyst. For du fikk meg å miste matlysten. Fikk jeg deg ikke å miste matlysten? Mhm. Det så ut som du åt ganske bra, da. Nei, hva åt jeg da? Ja, du åt en tallrik. Nei, jeg åt et romstykke. Mhm. Hun har pølser? Ja, to pølser. Pleier ikke å spise mye med alle. Du pleier å spise mer, men det varierer litt, det er ikke alt du øter masse. Hvorfor sa du til deg i stedet? Nå får du meg til å miste matløsten. Da kan du flytte over til Haraldsbord, for eksempel. Det er ikke lett. Først har du fått meg til å miste matløsten. Du bare finner på en masse ursjekter, og du vil ikke si hva grunnen er, tror jeg. Nei. Det har du vært. Hva er den grunnen, Ronny? Du får ikke vite det! 
Men har jag sagt att vi är färdiga då eller? Ja. Har jag det? Nej jag har ja. inte det. Jag har inte sagt att vi är färdiga. Varför stänger du mig in i patron? Du, jag vill säga att vi är färdiga. Ja men jag är färdig. Ja du är färdig, har jag sagt att jag är färdig? Jag vill att du ska tänka efter nästa gång du får en, en tanke om att göra det. Av en eller annan orsak. Lust att slå. Så vill att du ska tänka. Mm. Du, nej men vänta, jag är inte färdig. Jag tror stäng mig inne. Nej men sätt dig då, du ska inte hålla. Det är, det är många Pasti. som du har varit på. Men Pasti, varför har du mig när du kan stå framme då? Ja, men det är du som har skapat situationen. Det var du som slog mig, det var därför du blev för in på rummet, sant? Ja. I felt like an idiot standing there with the microphone. I just wanted to turn it off. That's, that was my first social instinct. Uh, But instead, I had to go closer to get proper sounds. I was about like one, one and a half meters away from them. And I could do that since the deal was that I could record everything. Um, so I followed them when uh, Patrick took Ronnie to his room and the door just banged in my face and I didn't dare to go in, but after a couple of minutes, I, I knocked on the door and uh, and opened it and asked if I could come in. And uh, the social worker said, well, you'll have to ask Ronnie. And he said, yes. So the two of them were sitting on the bed and I sat on my knees like this, interviewing or recording. And this I could do because I had that agreement with the kids that it's rolling, I'm, I'm taping all the time. If not, this would have been very difficult to do. Uh, and I also promised the kids that I wouldn't use things that they didn't want me to broadcast. Though it's of course my responsibility since, since they're kids and, and they can't always judge for themselves. But when we talked a lot about that we needed to show both difficult and good things about living in an institution. And these kids really touched me deeply. They were so hungry for attention and they wanted so much for somebody to, listening, to listen to them. And I felt bad leaving, becoming yet another person, not staying. But I think that some of the situations that I caught on this island are maybe the closest I've been to recording the truth. Because the children didn't manage to pull themselves together uh, as much as we, or grown-ups, often do. Uh, because we lie in scenes and situations as well, of course. Because we're aware of the microphone and we get a little stiff and we watch our mouth. But you can always hope that you get something close to the truth. And in my opinion, I could never have made an interview with the same effect as, as this uh, situation has. I would never have got the intensity between Patrick and Ronnie and the sound of him spitting the social worker in the face. Uh, I always try to be as discreet as possible when I work as a fly on the wall. Uh, to make myself invisible, though it's not possible. Um, but I'm quite aware of how uh, <laughs> I use my eyes. Uh, I never, like in this situation, I don't make eye contact with, with Ronnie and, and Patrick. I, I was kind of busy with my equipment and looked down into the sides a bit. And if people try to, to catch my eyes and, and address me, I, of course, I, I answer friendly and, and, and briefly, but I also often try to, to look at the second person that I want him to, that I want him to, to address, so that he has to 
to turn his attention to this person as well. So, so I always try to, to move the attention away from, from myself. And in most of my documentaries, I, I mix uh, situations like, like these and, and uh, interviews because it gives quite nice dynamics, in, in my opinion. Uh, and I'm often nervous before <laughs> recording. Things are at stake. And the people that you're interviewing are often nervous too. It's painful to be a fly on the wall. Uh, you feel awful when you don't turn off the recorder. When people are crying, <laughs> you look stupid hanging, hanging around with your microphone. But it's important to keep in mind that it's not Kari being in this situation, but it's the journalist Kari. Uh, most of us are brought up, well, in a way that if things get difficult, we're trying to save the situation or make the best out of it. But I try to keep in mind that this isn't what I should do in, in this situation. Uh, and you can always choose not to use the things afterwards, but if you turn off the recorder, you, you can't get it back. And very often I think also that we, we bring our own prejudices uh, when we meet people. We tend to think that what's difficult for me must also be difficult for others, which is not always the case. Uh, in the children's home, one of the boys just went mad one of the first nights when, when I was there, and he had to be carried out of the room. And by instinct, I just turned off the recorder, and the kids just looked at me and said, hey, that happens all the time here, no worries. So I well, try to keep... Uh, well, my own, I'll try to be as neutral as, as possible. Um, I made a piece on a bachelor uh, a few years ago. He became a member of a pen pal club and he wrote for a Philip, Philip, uh, Philippine girl. And my thought was that uh, this must be maybe a bit embarrassing for him. But it wasn't. He just gave me two bags with love letters and invited me into the story. So it's important to keep that in mind, not to, to bring your own prejudices and, and feelings into to the story. Um, it's difficult to tape a scene or situation with five persons. Two is okay, three is okay, but more than three is difficult because it's hard to separate them from each other. It depends a bit where you're recording and if they've got different dialects and if there are different sexes, but, but uh, it's quite difficult to, to, uh, to uh, record a scene with, with more than three characters or people. If I have a main character, I often stick to that person uh, and stay close to the person that I'm, that I'm following. Uh, and scenes and situations can be authentical or they can be arranged down to the very minor detail. But some things you know will happen, either you're there or not. People will get up in the morning, brush their teeth, go to work. Those are the things that you can, can uh, get if, if people trust you. And you can also make things happen on tape. Uh, we've done that a couple of, of times, like people that have never spoken about things, but you know it's a big issue and you can make them do it on tape, which, of course, it's a heavy responsibility when it goes on, on the air, but, but well, just to say that scenes can be really from, from just somebody brushing their feet to, to a huge conversation between, between somebody. 
and I always write down everything after, have, after my recordings, after having, fi having finished recording. Um, a program filled with situations needs a narrator. Uh, we need to know what it looks like in the room, uh, where we are, uh, and it is very important that the descriptions are relevant to, to the story. Uh, a few years ago I made a, a piece about an old couple. Uh, they were 98 and 99 years old and they'd been married for 65 years and they had never been away from each other for one single day. And then he started to get senile and um, was moved into an old people's home, but she couldn't get a room together with him. Uh, and I wanted somehow to describe their meeting. And he told me that he was working in a barber shop when they met in 1929, and it costed like 10 cents or something to go to the barber. So I wrote that in my narration when I was to describe how they met. But then again, what has the barber to do with them meeting and, and falling in love? So then I, I researched how much a bouquet of roses costed in 1929, and instead wrote that they met in 1929 when a bouquet of roses costed 10 cents, which is a much more accurate picture of love than, than going to the barber, for instance. So. Um, Nearly always I make a deal with the people that I am going to interview, that the recorder is always running. Uh, so when I ring on your doorbell, I'm there with a the headset and, and, and the tape is, is running. Uh, but if there's anything that you don't want me to use, I won't use it. And this makes people feel more secure. And I've hardly ever experienced that they say you can't use this or that. It, it, it rarely happens. Um, yeah. And the microphone is really an important tool. Uh, <laughs> the distance between the source of sound and the microphone is so important for how it comes out of the radio. Uh, if you go to a movie, it's not like you see a movie with only close-up pictures or only wide shots. And the same goes for radio. You, you need the dynamics. So if it's your feet that is important, I stick the microphone towards your feet. If it's your feelings, it's going to be close to, to your mouth. Uh, yeah. uh, I'm just going to play the beginning of a piece that I made two years ago called The Brown Parcel. Uh, it all began exactly ten years ago when Cecilia visited her father in Denmark and every night he would come into her room to bid her goodnight. And one night he was carrying a brown parcel saying, take this parcel with you back to Norway, but you mustn't open it before at the earliest two years after your mother is dead. And in the course of these 10 years, Cecilia has wondered what can be in the parcel. And she had, has made recordings of many conversations with friends and acquaintances about it. And her mother died uh, in the fall of 2001 and she could now open the parcel. And this is where I came into the story. Yeah. Altså det startet for ti år siden nøyaktig. Og da var jeg på besøk hos faren min i Danmark. Han hadde flyttet til Danmark og giftet sig der nede. 
og hadde bodd der i flere år, mange år. Og jeg var på besøk sammen med ungene, og hver kveld så kom alltid faren min inn og sa, «Å, godnatt, godnatt, ikke sant?» og, sånn, og det gjorde han også denne kvelden. Kom inn i stripet til slåbråk, ikke sant? Og «Hei, hei, har du det bra?» og, ja, ja. Men denne gangen så hadde han med sig en brun pakke, Og så kommer han bort til sengen, og så sier han «Denne pakken skal du ta med dig til Norge. Men du skal ikke åpne den før to år efter at din mor er død.» NRK P2 sender «Den brune pakken». Arven etter far. En radiodokumentar av Kari Hesthammer. Min mor er død. Og nå i september er det to år siden. Her skjønner du, har jeg samlet en god del brev eh, fra faren min, fordi at vi skrev jo veldig mye med hverandre, fordi han flyttet jo til Danmark. Cecilie sitter på kne og løfter gullen og brev ut av en liten grøn koffert. Jeg står ved siden av med mikrofon. Så det er, det er noe som står NB. Høsten har så vidt begynt, og det er bare en måned til Cecilie skal åpne bakken. Hun sitter i det vestlige hvite huset av ved fjorden i Drøbbak, og roter i gamle papir etter faren, ni år etter at han har død. Og her er han som veldig gammel mann, med Donald Duck. Han elsket Donald Duck. Og alltid med spaserstokk, husker jeg. Det, det synes han var litt flott, å ha en spaserstokk som han svinket litt på. Kom og møtte meg for eksempel når jeg hadde vært hos venninnene mine og sånn. Så han var en sånn som alltid stilte opp hvis jeg spurte, «Far, kan du være så snill og hente meg hvis det var litt mørkt på veien hjem?» eller sånn. Ja, da. Det var nok sånn fars jente. Ja. Jeg fant til og med en kassett som han har snakket inn et brev på. Hallo, Pusen. Jeg begynte å skrive på et brev til deg, men jeg finner ut at det er mye. Så jeg tror jeg får ta det på ballen denne gangen. Det blir jo ikke et fullt ball, men det er jo bare glad. Jeg kan ikke huske at jeg spurte ham, men i all verden, hva er dette for noe, eller hvorfor sier du det, eller... Jeg nærmest bare tok den imot, og liksom la den i hyllen med alle tingene som skulle hjem dagen etter, og ja, så gikk det vel et år eller to, og så døde faren min. Og i etterkant av alt det, så begynte jeg å tenke på denne brune pakken som lå i kjelleren. Og så gikk jeg ned, og så tok jeg litt i den, og så så jeg på den, og så leste jeg på nytt igjen det som står utenpå. Den skal ikke åpnes før tidligst to år etter at din mor er død. Ja, så hun var, levde i beste velgående, og 
och var sprek och flott och så tänkte jag men det är er kanske dumt att den ligger i källaren den må ha en bankbox Och så upprättet jag för första gång i mitt liv en bankbox och la den bruna pakken ned i där. Och så skedde det ganska många dramatiska ting i livet mitt. Eh, först det med min egen skilsmisse. Så fick jag en kärste. Så dödde han. Så blev exmannen min syk och var då sjuk ett par år och så dödade han. Och då dukket den pakken upp igen i hodet mitt. För det jag syns jag hade husket liksom syns jag husket att det stod något där om mänskliga relationer, ett land utanpå om att detta och så gick jag ned i källvelven igen och läste utanpå och så stod det med farmins inskrift detta kan kanske si dig något om mänskliga relationer. Och så tänkte jag åh det er akkurat det jeg trenger nå. Jeg trenger det nå, jeg bør åpne den. Da følte jeg på en måte at, at den eneste eh, som jeg hadde, det var liksom faren min. Men han lå inne i en pakke med brunt papir, ikke sant? Og da tenkte jeg, Gud, det var det må ligge noe inne her som, som kan hjelpe mig, ikke sant? Wow. <laughs> Do you want to know what was inside? <laughs> Uh, the beginning is always very important. You make some sort of contract with the listener. What is this going to be about? You create some kind of expectations. In this case, it was obvious. The plot is so clear. Uh, but I always think along these lines. Where shall I start? Uh, what do I want the listeners to wait for? And how is it going to develop? It's more or less like old-fashioned storytelling uh, or the classical Hollywood dramaturgy. Will he have her in the end, for instance? What is working against the main character and what is helping him? Uh, Not all stories can be told along these lines, but present tense stories are quite suitable for this kind of structure. Someone is working on something or trying to achieve something. And... If I want you to love my main character, hoping that he or she achieves his goal, I have to present my main character. I have to let the listeners get to know the person a little bit. If not, why should they care? Uh, So somehow we need to identify a bit with the main character to be willing to, to go into the story. And that's what I'm trying to do when Cecilia opens the box with old stuff, uh, talking about the father, and I describe the situation we're in. So first I present my character, and then during the piece the listener should get a deeper and deeper picture of the person, getting to know him or her better and better, like in a novel. Uh, Then there is a point of no return and hopefully a climax. And in this case, what we are waiting for is the day that Cecilia opens the parcel. Uh, In one way, this story was a gift from heaven. Um, That kind of dramaturgy 
or excitement. Everybody said, "Ah, oh, what could it be in the, uh, in the parcel? Or I would have opened it right away. Or no, I would have waited. Uh, so everyone kind of just brought the parcel into their own lives and, and started to talk about what they would have done. Uh, but this also made things very difficult for me because you can't talk about whether to open a parcel or not and what can it be in it for 40 minutes. <laughs> so you have to find some sort of <laughs> what is this deeply about. Uh, and therefore I also needed to get Cecilia's personal story, which she wasn't very willing to give me in the beginning because she thought that the rest of the stuff was strong enough. But we really had to go into her parents' divorce and a lot of things that she, she didn't want to talk about. So at some point, after having spent quite a few hours with her, I said, well, Thursday we're going to meet and we're going to talk about all the things that you don't want to talk about. <laughs> and so we did, and most of it is in the piece. Uh, but I, I really needed to find a real subject of the story, which for me is a bit, what can you give to your kids, for instance, after your death? If my father cheated on my mother, do I want to know? And if it's important that I know, why can't he tell me while he's still alive? Uh, so all these kinds of questions came up. So you want to know what was inside? Yeah. <laughs> um, her father had written a diary, 500 pages, from, the, from his divorce from, from Cecilia's mother. And Cecilia's mother uh, uh, got together with uh, her father's best friend. So this was a kind of uh, difficult relationship. And her father watched them in the house during dinner parties. And so really his best fr friend, after a while, got married to, to his, his wife. So he, he wrote like 500 pages about this and, and gave it to Cecilia. So she, I got to photocopy uh, the diary and uh, used parts of it in the documentary and then I threw away uh, the rest of it uh, afterwards. I promised her not to keep it. She wanted, to, she wanted it to be hers. Um, and I also, she'd been waiting like 10 years to open this parcel. And when she finally opened it, I fainted. <laughs> so, and I've got it on tape. <laughs> it was really embarrassing, but I was, uh, I was pregnant. So I got so sick and I just felt the blood dropping. And I thought, I can't throw up now. Uh, she's been waiting to open this parcel for 10 years. <laughs> and the next thing I remember is we, uh, we were in, a, in, a, in the basement in, um, and the door was open, so my head was outside and my feet were <laughs> inside. And well, yeah. And uh, I listened to the tape afterwards and I heard Cecilia. <laughs> in the back of the recordings, oh my God, she's dead. <laughs> and she said, we've got to stop this now. This is my father saying from heaven that, that this is enough. Don't mess anymore with my stuff. So, so I put it in the documentary because it's a twist and it's unexpected. So, yeah, <laughs> that's the end.
Well, any questions before we <laughs> we end? Yeah. You mentioned earlier about storyboarding and dramaturgy. Could you say something about how you storyboard your pieces? Yeah, I I think of my pieces more or less like a composition, uh, and I often often give different uh, uh, colors to to different characters. I kind of I kind of draw a storyboard like. <coughs> depending on how many layers, but like main character, narrator, music, side character, one, for instance. And I try to place them, place them. I often work with yellow pens, and I, uh, I use different colors for the different uh, parts of the documentary, and I try to, to place them out along these, these lines. It's quite efficient, actually, because Okay, we've got red hair, and it got 20 minutes, and we have had no red color. It's often not good for your composition. <laughs> so then, I, okay, I need my main character to to jump in at five minutes. So I kind of yeah draw a big storyboard with colors and and place it out. And I I always know, or most of the time, I know where to begin. And I know more or less what's the climax of the story and the point of no return, somewhere here. <laughs> uh, and then just the ending, somewhere. And this is the presentation uh, part of the story. This is where we're going to know the main character in the story better and better with uh, uh, obstacles and, and other people helping my main character. So I always think along these lines. Yeah. Yeah. What's the point of no return? Uh, it's when there's no way back. You, you're so deep into the story and you feel where it's going to head, but you don't know the climax, but there's no way back. <laughs> yeah. Well, so yes, how, do you, how are you assigned a coach? Uh, or, or do you have the same coach for multiple stories? No, uh, it's my boss that, that gives me a coach. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then what about the funding for Radio Norway? Uh, it's uh, public broadcasting and it's paid by the listeners and by the government. So it's, uh, yeah, pretty much it. Mm. Yeah. Was part of the story an effort by your main character to reconcile with the father, gore with the memory? <coughs> because it seems that that's where everything is headed to the big climaxes, she opens the box and discovers what's there and then tries to make sense of it both in the present but also in the past for the future. And he, her father was a strange kind of guy. He kind of, uh, he left all kinds of stuff for, for, uh, for her. He, he hid kind of small letters and things around in the house that she discovered after his death. So I think he really wanted to, to live, live on, and, and she was really attached to her father, but not so much to, to her mother. So the one thing that she was really afraid of was that this was going to be something not good about her father. Your father is not your father, for instance. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, so that was the one thing that she was afraid, afraid of. Uh, but there were a lot of things uh, leading towards a diary or something about the divorce. So did it ultimately lead to some 
obvious resolution for her? Yeah, she wanted to, she decided, I'm going to, for my kids, I'm going to tell them things while I'm alive. I won't give them such a thing after my death. I want to, to talk to my kids while I'm alive. So that was kind of her conclusion. Mm. But she wasn't angry. Uh, she was happy to, to, to have all this, though it wasn't very... Her mother didn't come very well out of it. But, uh, yeah. How did you find that particular story? I'm sorry, I didn't... How did you come across that particular story? Oh, this story I got from a friend of a friend of a friend. <laughs> so this was given to me. I heard this story, it might be a documentary, so, yeah. So that's how I, I got this one. Yeah. yeah. What if it had been something that wasn't super significant in the parcel? Then, yeah. That? Yeah, really. Cause, and it was really so close to my deadline, so I was in studio editing the, the first part of the, the piece while she opened, so it could have been like Donald Duck or something. Uh, and, yeah. But I, a plan B. <laughs> no, and it was really the risk because people are so curious uh, to know what was in the parcel. So that was a, I just had to run the risk and, and hope that it was something there. So, yeah. So maybe the deadline answers this, but did you ever think about when you're telling the story, maybe the story is more about her reaction to the I mean, you said you knew where it started, mm. but it, it almost seems like there's two, two ways you could have told that story. You could have started very close yeah. to the beginning with opening that box. Absolutely. To me, it was a deadline question, but also it's like when you say you get a parcel and you can't open it till, after two, till two years after your mother's death, it's, people will really stick around the radio to, to know what's in it. So it's a good place to, to start. It's, you'd wait pretty long to, to hear what's, what's in it, yeah. <laughs> okay, I'll let you have a pause. <laughs>